this series, it's not even a series, it's two weeks. Um, it's going to prep us for, for Lent. We'll talk about that. It's called Everything and Everyone. We want to uh, give you some context for where we're going as we approach Easter. And so it's just two weeks, this week and next week. And then what comes after that is Ash Wednesday. And so how many of you grew up in a church that followed the religious calendar and you observed Lent? Let me see your hands. Raise them up real high. Okay, anybody? Okay. And how many of you did, did Lent? How many of you used to do Lent? Anybody? A few of you. How many of you still do something with Lent? So we want to change that a little bit. Um, to, and to give you some context and give you kind of a, a compass for what Lent's about, I just picked a couple verses that I felt like would help us. Um, and I went to the King James Version because it uses a few words that I think are better, uh, better translations in this particular verse. The Apostle Paul writes the letter to the church at Ephesus, but he says this, see then that you, in fact, let's just say this together because you haven't said circumspectly enough <laughs> in your life. So, so we'll say that together. See then that you do what? Walk circumspectly. This felt good just to say it. Don't you feel smarter? feel smarter because you said it, not as fools, but as wise, in case you didn't know what circumspectly meant, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And we often refer to our relationship with Jesus as a walk. And the reason why we do that is because he walked everywhere. He went from place to place and he didn't uh, live in a time when he could do anything but walk. And so he walked and the people that followed him, they walked with him. So when Jesus said to his disciples, I want you to follow me, he, he meant that quite literally, that they would you know, when he was going to go then to a different town or a different place or a different region, that they would follow him, and they did that. And so we call it our walk, and he says to do this circumspectly, which is really just a, a I, I like words, I'm a word guy. It's a word that really helps us think. You know, you, when you walk, when you go, you want to do so with some thought. You want to take some care. And we get that in Colorado, because when we hike, we want to hike with care. You know, I mean, you could, you could lose your life if you're not careful. You could be along a razor edge or you could be someplace and have forgotten, you know, the right shoes or the right socks or enough water or whatever else. So when you walk around here, you need to be careful when you walk and where you walk and how you walk. And this is how Paul describes it, walk circumspectly. But then he says this, I want you to redeem the time. It's a great phrase. And redeem means that there's something that's lost that I'm going to get back and I'm going to have to pay for it. I'm going to buy it back. And when he says redeem the time, really the better word would be season. That's what the, the word in the Greek means, season, redeem the season. Now, last week we said with, with the story of Elijah that God is concerned about geography, meaning place, where you are. And some of us encounter God in various places in different ways. I don't know where that is for you, but uh, hopefully you did some pondering and thinking about where you're more likely to encounter God's presence but God is also concerned about time. Even though God is all places at all times and he doesn't have time as a constraint at all, he's also concerned about time and he's concerned about it because he put you in a, a time and a place. But you, you have a moment, you have a season. You, your life is, you know, whatever length it is from start to finish and you exist in the context of time. And time happens just how we experience it. We, a moment just passed, a moment's coming, and you're in a moment today. It's true for today, it's true for this week and this month and this year. And we mark our years with birthdays or various occasions, and the liturgical calendar was set up so that we could experience God in different times, or really, a better word, different seasons. 
And this liturgical calendar is designed to cause you to think about who God is and how he relates to you at different times of the year so that you don't just gaze on one side or one aspect or one perspective of who God is. You need to see God in all of his glory and all of his fullness and all the uniqueness that he has. But that's like taking a jewel and turning it and seeing each facet and seeing how the light reflects and what's the depth and what do you see. This is what God wants in terms of the liturgical calendar or the church calendar. And so most of the world experiences that calendar to one degree or another, whether they celebrate Christmas or Easter, all of those kinds of things. But Many of us have let the rest of those dates kind of fall to the wayside and maybe we don't celebrate the epiphany or maybe we don't celebrate Advent. You know, we just think about Christmas season. But as we approach Easter, Advent behind us, now Lent is pushing head toward Easter. It's the kind of thing that as we experience it, we want to redeem the time. And we can allow the calendar, the moment we're in, to direct our walk so that we walk circumspectly, thoughtfully, and carefully. And so these two weeks, we'll prep for, for the Lenten season. And uh, this, this Lent season, Lent for short, Lenten, it, it really comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word, Lincoln is how you say it, but it represents or refers to the season of spring. And this season of spring is this season of resurrection and new life. It's put in the calendar where it is for a very specific purpose and reason, you know, for our hemisphere, of course. And this experience of Lent draws us from Ash Wednesday all the way to Easter Sunday. This is going to be the latest Easter, almost, not quite, but almost the latest Easter possible this year. But even now, it feels like it's a little early, doesn't it, to be talking about Easter or Lent or all those kinds of things. But in fact, it's a little bit late. And so... In two and a half weeks, we'll experience Ash Wednesday on March 2nd. We'll have a service here in this place, and it'll be online as well. But if you can be here in person, then it's helpful because the experience of having ashes imposed on you reminds us from the scriptures that we are, that we are but dust, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, that we find ourselves returning to the earth eventually, and life is short, even though this is a season that we're in, we're alive, and doing what God wants us to do, seeking him, walking with him. And as we experience Ash Wednesday, we're reminded about really the essence of repentance, which is walking circumspectly, thoughtfully. Lord, what are you doing in my life? And what needs to remain a part of my life? What should not remain a part of my life? And so the season of Lent gives us an opportunity to do one of two things. This is how we practice it around here um, you could practice it in your own way, but we either add something to our life that isn't there, maybe a, a spiritual habit, prayer time, reading scripture, something like that. You want to add something that is not normally a part of your daily experience, and you add it for those days, 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter, or you take something away, something that maybe you find yourself inadvertently dependent on, or you wonder if it's maybe taken some way the place of God or it's an idol in your life or you wonder if you didn't have it, if it might create more time for you to spend time with God or, or maybe the hunger or the, the absence of this thing, you know, Netflix, whatever it is, gives you an opportunity to seek God in a new way and so you remove it from your life. You can either add something or remove it. 
Well, today, we're just putting this on your radar. You've got two and a half weeks to sort that out and argue with God about it. Because God may say, you know what, and he'll remind you of something that you might ought to give up or maybe add to your life, and then you're not going to like that at all because it requires you to change your pattern, your life. Usually we add something we don't really want in our life or we take away something we really, really like in our life. And in that process, God finds a way to speak to us about our walk and our life and our heart, priorities and values, all of those things. So now you get to ponder it. And we usually kick that off, you kick it off, or we start this thing on Ash Wednesday. Now, if you're adding, you might think, but that's not 40 days. And nobody's thought of that yet because you're probably as good at math as I am. But between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday, it's actually 46, 47 days, depending on how you count the days. And the typical observation of Lent is, is that Every day but Sunday, you kind of follow your Lent commitment. And Sunday, you take the day off. The first few years I practiced Lent, I just went, you know, I was like hardcore Lent. You know, I didn't even take the day off. I just went straight through. And then learned that 40 days, pretty important time frame, spiritually speaking. I mean, nothing's magical about it. But the reason it's 40 days is because of the significance of the number 40 in Scripture. And I realized when I began practicing it that way with a break on Sunday, so, you know, maybe you gave up chocolate for Lent, and, but then Sunday you get to enjoy chocolate, you know, or you gave up Netflix and Sunday you binge for 14 hours, whatever it is that you do. What I found out is that that, that method is harder because oh, when I just kind of bear down and just push through 46 days or whatever, I didn't even have to look at the thing that was tempting me. But when I gave up Sunday as an observation of that and then had to restart everything all over again on Monday, it reminded me of what I was and what I need and what God is doing in my life. And so we hope that you'll engage with Lent. We hope that you'll be here on March 2nd at 7 p.m. Ash Wednesday, the service, and we'll engage. And as we do this, we're going to walk through just a couple weeks to prep for the Lent time together, the Lent time. So between... March 2nd and Easter Sunday, we'll be going through the second half of the, the Gospel of John. And John, Gospel of John, will help us understand the life of Jesus, but only during the last week of his life. What's very unique about the Gospel of John is that he spends almost half of his Gospel focused in on the entire last week of Jesus' life. From John about 12 to all the way at the end, I mean, a full 50% of the gospel is focused in on one week. And it's incredibly unique. And I love the gospel of John. It's my favorite gospel, I think because of its uniqueness and because of John's perspective. When John writes his gospel, he's an old man. It's written a few decades after the other stories of Jesus. There's four stories of the gospel of Jesus' life in our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and what? John, very good, it's right there for you. And, and the, John is unique. It, you remember the old Sesame Street song, one of these things is not like the other? That was, could be sung about the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John, when you look at all of the stuff in it, it has about, I don't know, 90 some percent is unique to John. It's not in the other Gospels at all. And when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're so similar, about 80% is similar or shared between the three of them. And this becomes obvious when you start the very beginning of the Gospels. When you read the story of Jesus and how it begins, it becomes very obvious that the Gospel of John is unique and different. 
So we begin the Gospels, we usually kind of go to the beginning around that Advent time when we're talking about Christmas and the birth of Jesus. And when Matthew begins, it's almost like he forgot that he needed to have a hook to grab people in. He starts with the genealogy, you know, the part you skip. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus. This is the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's writing mostly to Jewish people, and he begins to just tie immediately who Jesus is to Father Abraham, the, the father of the Jewish people. And so he begins, and what follows are many verses of names that most of them, many of us don't know, and he begins to tell the story. He roots Jesus in a moment in history, and he ties it all the way back to a man named Abraham. When Mark begins to tell his story, he does go back in time, Jewish history, not all the way back to Abraham, but he does tie the very beginning of his gospel to Jesus and Isaiah the prophet. And then he begins to tell the story of Jesus. He completely skips the birth story, doesn't go back to the beginning at all. When he picks up Jesus in real time, he's 30 years old and off about his business. Now, the, the gospel we use for most of our beginnings during the Christmas season is the gospel of Luke, and he was a historian. And so Luke being a historian, he's going to give us the history that maybe the other two didn't give us. But even Luke, when he begins his story, he says, in the time of King Herod, king of Judea, he begins to root it in this moment in history. And he throws in a genealogy too, but thankfully we're into the story before he throws all his names at us. And he does Matthew one better. He doesn't start with Abraham. He didn't go back just to Abraham. Luke, being the historian that he is, digs into history and goes all the way back to Adam. That's pretty far back. When it comes to people, it's pretty far back. And so this is how Matthew, Mark, and Luke do it. When Luke does it, it's, it's, like, it's like Luke does this, Matthew, Mark, when they take care of it. When John tells the story, John tells the story, it's almost like he went to an epic master storyteller class. And he tells the story from a grand perspective. And he is going to give us a completely different understanding, not only of who Jesus is in reality, but who he is theologically. And I, every time I begin to read the prologue of John, which is the first 18 verses of chapter 1, the very beginning of it, I, I don't read it as text on a page. I, I hear... I hear and see it very differently than you might, but I have a pretty vivid imagination. This, this is how I hear it and see it. Thank you. 
Any Star Wars fans in the room? I mean, this, I remember sitting in a the theater with my dad when I was, I don't know, 10 years old, and, and that, that thing happened, and this text began to scroll, and I was caught all the way to the time when I took my boys to see episode one, which was just horrible, but, I, you know, it's just a... And this, this is how I hear and see the prologue, because it is, it is a, an epic story. And so John... John doesn't start with Abraham or even Adam. John starts the story of Jesus before time was time, before it was a thing, before the clock was ticking, before anything was made. In fact, he makes it very clear in the first 18 verses of the gospel that before anything was made, Jesus was there, pre-existing. He begins by saying this, in the beginning, I mean, the words were the actual prologue of John. In the beginning, the word already existed, the word was with God, and the word was God. And before we talk about that and what that means, don't miss these first three words, because John is, is echoing back to the very beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the, the first words of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that says, in the beginning. And John is making it very clear, look, you need to know that, I know you've read the other stories, and they're important stories, and they have incredible details in them, the other gospel writers, but you need to understand that Jesus didn't begin with Mary. That's not when he began. He didn't begin his existence at the immaculate conception or when he was born as a baby. Jesus has always been and he is now, and he always will be. And he wants us to know that because he uses the very same phrasing that Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the story. Jesus is the beginning of the story. And this matters. And theologians throughout history have argued the, the truth or the veracity or even the, the application of what this means. And It'll be just a couple verses later that God will start making stuff. That's what he'll do. And we read in John chapter 1 that Jesus was about the business of doing that, that everything that was made was made through him and in him. But the first thing that we see that God makes is what? Light. It wasn't there before. Now, if you read the, the creation account, this isn't the sun. He's not making the sun. He's making light. And, and this is the very light of God that begins to illuminate all that is the sun and stars they come later but God is making light and God what he said what did he say let there be light and then immediately light appeared and so it's in this understanding of creation that John writes his prologue and gives us a picture of who Jesus is now there are two absolutely foundational ideas in these verses and they form the foundation of where John takes his gospel and the story of Jesus and the things that we need to grab hold of this week and next week before we get into Lent. This is the first foundational idea. Jesus always was, he always is, and he always will be, and everything was made through him, by him, for him, and because of him. That's a very different picture than Jesus was a man who walked the earth and even the death and burial and resurrection. They set Jesus apart significantly, but not the same or the same uniqueness as always in existence. And that's who he is. And so John says very plainly that in the beginning, the word already existed. It was the, 
the word of God or the mouth of God speaking words that cause creation to even occur. Now this, this word, word, in the Greek, there is a word, and in the Greek, that word is logos. And this word refers to, in Greek and Roman philosophy and theology, understanding of all things historical, that this is the divine, creative influence and catalyst that represents all that we cannot see. And it is this, capital W word, that John uses to name Jesus. So when you read the first few verses, he's talking about Jesus. doesn't seem like it. doesn't seem obvious. But in the beginning, the word already existed. And the word was with God. And the word was God. It's this creative force. He's always been. And he always will be. In fact, we know this because a bit later in the same chapter, it's not John 1.1, 1, 1, it's John 1.14. It says, so the word became what? Human. And he made his home among us. In fact, it's another callback to Genesis the, and the tabernacles of uh, the people that were finding themselves as nomads and living in tents. And, and it, probably a direct translation would be, so the word became human and tabernacled or pitched his tent or put his home near us. This is, this is what Jesus did. He's, he's the incarnation or he's God wrapped in flesh. But he was eternal and is eternal and has always been. Now, this is why it matters, because John's about to tell the story of Jesus. If he's going to tell the story of a prophet, a wise man, even a miraculous man, even a unique man that God is speaking through, even a unique man that God raises from the dead, that's one story, but that's not the biblical story. That's not the story in Scripture. Those are parts of it, but it's incomplete. John is telling us, that he's going to tell the story of a God who has always been, always is, and always will be, wrapped in flesh, who represents everything that we know about God. It, here's a better way to say it. Paul says it much better in Colossians chapter 1. He says this, Christ is the image of the unseen God and the firstborn of all creation I remember when I was a kid, I grew up in church. I don't know if you grew up in church or not, but I grew up in church and I remember having some trouble with not being able to see God, not being able to actually see him. Or I was told at church, you know, God is three and he's one and he's three and he's one. I'm like, make up your mind. Which is he? Is he three or is he one? And I remember praying to God and saying, you know what, Jesus, I mean, God, I mean, I'm not, I don't know, who am I praying to? And so I had this little conversation with the Trinity you know, look, hey, Jesus, if I say you, I mean God the Father too. I don't want anybody's feelings hurt in the Trinity. You know, and I want them to know I'm talking to all of them at once, but I wanted desperately to see God. And I didn't, of course, understand even the remotest application of this or the understanding of the prologue in John. But what Paul is saying in Colossians is this, that if you want to see God, you look at the Gospels. If, if you want to know what God is like, then you should read the words of Jesus. If you're not sure how God treats people who are off the rails, running their life into a ditch, and have all kinds of messed up priorities, you should probably read the Gospels. Because you're gonna find that Jesus gives us answers to every one of those questions I just mentioned, and a thousand more. 
If you want to know something about who God is, how he thinks, how he loves, what he would teach if he were here, all you have to do is look at the Gospels. Why? Well, John says it, many others say it, Paul says it most succinctly right here, that Jesus is the image, one translation says, of the invisible God. The God that we cannot see, Jesus puts hands and feet to it, in flesh, in ideas, in conversations, in interactions. Have you ever been reading scripture? Maybe the Old Testament in this case that I'll, I'll give you. Maybe you're reading a, a portion of the, the history of the Israelites or maybe a section of the law and, and, uh, and you read something and you think, I, I mean, that's just confusing. It might be appalling. It might be terribly troubling or somewhere in between. Has anybody ever done that? Let me see your hands if you have. Okay, you read your Bibles more than the first service does. That's good. <laughs> I, I, I'll read something in Exodus and I'll think, I can't even believe this is in the Bible. I mean, this, is, this isn't even PG-13. This is, this, is, this is pretty, I mean, you know, no wonder they don't make a movie of this section of the scriptures. You know, I mean, Christians wouldn't even go see it. It's, it's just ridiculous. And I read about maybe something that I, it appears that God told somebody to do or something that occurs at God's hand and I think this is confusing, I don't understand. If you've ever read something in scripture and you're confused about who God is or who his, what his nature is like or, or how he loves or how he forgives or how large his grace is, then you should go to the gospels. You should go to the gospels because Jesus is the image of the invisible God and see if it lines up with what you think you read. And if it doesn't line up, then there's a good chance you misunderstood what you read. If it doesn't line up, it could mean that you maybe don't understand the culture of the day or how this was translated or what happened before or what happened after. But I can tell you what you can take to the bank. I, I know that you can be sure of this, that if you're wondering how Jesus would interact with people who find themselves in error or on the wrong path, or if you wonder how Jesus is going to help two people solve a dispute or get along when they don't feel like forgiving one another, so many life circumstances we could describe by moments in the Gospels. If you're wondering about any of that, how does God feel about that, then go to the Gospels because Jesus is the image of the unseen God and he is the firstborn of all creation. And he didn't just appear on the scene at the beginning of the first century. He's always been around. In fact, when John says this in verse 14 that the word became human and made his home among us. He's describing what Paul said in Colossians chapter one, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then we get this big picture. If we look at all three of the first verses in chapter one, this is how the prologue of John begins. You saw it scrolling on the screen. Let me read it. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word is logos, Jesus the word was with God and the word was God and he existed in the beginning with God and God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. And this is the first kind of key foundational piece of theology. If you're going to read the gospels and have any understanding of who God is and what he's up to and how he's going to relate to us. And why this matters is because we're about to read some stories and a lot of red letters, if you have a red letter Bible of the words of Jesus, that begin in John chapter 12 and follow all the way to the end. 
And Jesus is going to say some things that if you don't have this as a lens, one of the key lenses, then you're going to misunderstand what he's up to and what God is doing, even today. You might be of the, the feeling that, that life or culture is getting worse. It might feel like it's getting worse. It may feel like that things are about to get ripped apart, but you would misunderstand what's happening historically, politically, religiously, spiritually, if you don't understand these key pillars, these key foundations. This is the first one. Jesus has always been, he always will be, and he is who God is from the very beginning. So if you wonder about who God is, Jesus can show you the way. And then the next two verses give us the next pillar, the next piece of foundation. This is what it says in the very next two verses of John chapter one. The word gave life to, say it with me, that was created and his life brought light to, the word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to all the Republicans. No, no, it didn't say it did no, his life brought light to all of the left, woke, the left people, woke people. I mean, I, you can fill in whatever you want to do, but obviously I'm making a point. We'll keep going. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never what? And so what he begins to say in this moment, what John says after he articulates the nature of Jesus, is now his theology is going to encompass me and you and everybody you know. And that theology should inform our practice and how we engage in relationships with other people. But without this understanding, then we really aren't sure how to relate to people who are different than us or have a different ideology, a different philosophy, a different view of economics, or, or even how we should care for the poor, fill in the blank unless we understand that this piece of foundational theology informs our practice in every way. We have a group of people that are reading through Scripture through a Bible app. And the, the Bible app, uh, you know, that you can download from, you know, iOS or Android or wherever else, it helps you kind of engage in Scripture reading plans so that you kind of stay on track if you're not sure where to go or what to read. And we also have a place for discussion. So we have some comments. There's about 100 people a part of this reading discussion group. And a lot of them are here at Castle Oaks, and some live far away, and some are friends from whenever. But I, I know most everybody that's a part of this, at least to some degree. And it's an incredible wide variety of people. It's absolutely a, a, just a wide breadth. If you're a part of that group and you know like two people, you should know the other 98 uh, comprise a, a wide breadth of humanity and a great number of differing theological views. And it's amazing, it's powerful. Because we need each other. We need people who think differently than us. I need to walk alongside people that disagree with what I think about this or that or would approach this given situation or problem or circumstance very differently than me. That's how I grow, that's how I become more like Christ is when we're sort of walking arm in arm, arguing about it as we go. And so as we're reading, we're reading through the book of Genesis, and uh, we're reading this, this section that includes the Tower of Babel. Do you remember the Tower of Babel? you remember the story in Genesis? It, flannel graph maybe, or when you were growing up, this, this Tower of Babel, these people gather, and they want to they build this incredible monument, 
mostly to themselves, which is part of the problem, but they're, they're going to build this thing. And God, Genesis articulates this story, it's incredible, that you know, God's going to do something to thwart their efforts because what they're doing is what's amazing. Their accomplishment's almost too, too good. And so God confuses them, languages are born, and every linguist in the world says, so that's why I do what I do. All of the languages, they can't communicate anymore, and they're on differing sides of the equation and all that. And then the comment from one of the Bible readers, whom I know, says, it feels to me like that when God started the church, it's almost like he reversed the Tower of Babel that occurred in Genesis. And if you know much about the day of Pentecost when the church started, uh, Peter preached and there were people in Jerusalem that were there for all kinds of festivals and in particular Jewish festivals and There were people there that spoke many different languages. And even though they all spoke different languages, Peter shows up, he begins to preach. The apostles, disciples are helping him. They all hear the gospel in their language too. I don't know if it's because they spoke in a different language by virtue of God's power, or if they all were able to hear by virtue of God's listening, strength in their minds and their ears, but they all heard the gospel in one language. And so this gentleman says on the Bible app, it feels to me like God is reversing the, the experience of Babel and bringing us all together. And he couldn't have spoken the truth more clearly because the word gave life to everything and brought light to everyone. And we all come together in a place where even though you and I might think very differently about something, we recognize that we're following Jesus and you're in my life and I'm in your life for the sake of us coming together on the things that matter the most. And also, because you and I need each other for different perspectives that help us grow. You watch the culture begin to rip and divide. Do you think that cultural divide right now is getting better, healing, or is it getting worse and dividing? Which is it? Feels to me like it's ripping apart at the seams. In fact, every event that occurs or every topic that comes up every issue that seems to make its way into headlines or the public discourse, it feels like the cultural divide is deepening. And this just isn't true and secular or outside the church. It happens inside the church. In fact, you go to any church in Castle Rock and pretty quickly, in fact, you could just probably walk around the parking lot to figure this out. You could maybe even begin to discern what flavor church you're walking into whether this is a conservative church or a liberal church or somewhere in the middle, this is the nature of the cultural divide. And what this means for me and you as we live out our faith practically is chiefly this. When John writes this and we read it today, well, John wrote this at a point in time when the culture was completely divided. It couldn't have been more hotly contested than when John wrote his gospel. In fact, the Roman Empire was about to just completely disintegrate in flames and fury. And when we read what John wrote, most of us would need to, well, in self-reflection admit, we don't even really believe this. We believe it in terms of a principle or an idea, but we don't believe it practically, that in fact the word gave life to everything and brought light to everyone. I could name a few people that I think are pretty dark, couldn't you? And when John lays this out as a truth, a reality, then we have to lay our behavior up against it. Most of us feel judged by 
others based on what we think or believe or maybe how we voted or an ideology that we hold close to. And when we feel judged by them, we in turn judge them back because we want to be right and we think what we think because we think we're right. And the reason we think we're right is because we've looked at the facts and read the stories and paid attention to the details and we're absolutely certain that we're on the right path and so we deepen our position, dig our heels in, and the cultural divide deepens because we have valued an ideology above people, above love, above, well, this truth, that the word gave life and light to everyone and everything. And all the while, the truth takes a back seat to our relational preferences and to us wanting to keep a distance from people that we think just don't even know what's going on in the world. Can you imagine what it would be like if we kept this at the forefront of our thoughts? Because John's about to tell some stories. He's going to tell some stories about people you wouldn't be seen in public with. He's going to tell some stories about redemption and life and, and falling down and getting back up. He's going to tell some stories that encapsulate the gospel of Jesus in incredibly powerful ways. But the stories won't have any teeth at all, and they won't make any sense to you at all, and the rest of the gospel won't even matter if we don't understand that the word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. And some of you are so stuck in the, uh, the focus of the culture and what's happening around us right now that this verse has no power in your life at all. Because you feel and you have a sense that things are getting worse and things are getting worse and where is this headed and surely things are just going to come flying apart and I don't want to be a part of it and so where's the hole I can hide in? But the truth is this, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. If this truth isn't first and foremost in your mind, well, no wonder you feel like giving up. But God has called me and you to be in relationships where we at least begin to believe or maybe even just suspect that life has been given to everything and light is given to everyone. And so the question that you ought to wrestle with before we wrap up the two weeks and get into Lent is this one. What if you believe that? What if? What if you entered interactions with people very different than you, think differently than you, believe differently than you, with this understanding that light is already there? that you're not engaging in the conversation so that you can reach into their cobwebbed brain and pull the light switch on. That's not what God called you to do. What he's called you to do is to know and believe that there's light there and engaging with them in a way that allows them to see the light within you, the light that Jesus brought, the word. And if you did that, oh my goodness, it would change your countenance, wouldn't it? It would change your words, would change your expectations. Instead of geared up for a battle, you might be open-handed. Instead of having a heart shut down, you might be open-hearted. Instead of looking with a suspicious eye, you might look with a hopeful eye. And in doing so, the kingdom of God grows in that relationship because it's true. Jesus came, always has been, always will be, and he gave light and life to everyone and everything. Let me guide you through a prayer. Help us through this. Lord, we ask that in this moment you would, uh, 
allow your spirit to have his way with us. That we would see your hand at work. That we would know and believe that what we're reading in the Gospels is true. That your light was given to everyone. That your life was given to everyone. And so, Lord, call to mind a person or a group or a part of our population that represents an ideology that we sit in judgment of. And just in humility, we'll allow your spirit to do this. Somebody we feel superior to, somebody we feel more right than, somebody we're certain that is on the wrong path or should quit meddling with the way things are run. Somebody that represents the brokenness or selfishness of the world to us. Lord, we pray that you would, in gentleness, call to mind this this person or like we said, an ideological group. Lord, we do not want to be about the business of breaking the world further. We want to be about the business of healing the divide that separates people. We mostly want many of the same things. Lord, we want to be part of the, the healing and the solution, the gentleness that can flow between people who begin to see each other as image bearers someone who has received light and even in our own darkness Lord help us to recognize that sometimes the things that we're right about need to be challenged by somebody else who thinks uh, another view should win so Lord as we engage in a broken world this week we declare that you are present that as dark as it can seem that the darkness can never be driven completely to overcome the light that the light will remain may that light be in us as we live this week in the name of Jesus we pray together we all say amen